0: Father, would you wake us up this morning? Uh, Maybe some of us need to be woken up physically. Some of us need to be woken up spiritually. Um, As we look at these passages in your word and we see uh, internal fighting between your people, God, help us understand how it relates to us today as the church and the body of Christ. Would you help us see the things we need to see and hear the things we need to hear? Would you help transform our hearts, make them soft this morning? convict us, Spirit, as we need to be convicted. Change us as we need to be changed. We ask that you would do it, and we pray in your name. Amen. Have you ever punched somebody in the face? I'm not looking for a raise, you know, people to raise their hands, but yes, I see you. I see that hand back there. That's good. Um, My wife, if you know my wife, she's as sweet as can be, and uh, you know, our, our brain tells us, science tells us that we, when we get into situations of fear, we either go to fight or flight. And my wife, when she gets into those situations, specifically when somebody's hiding behind somebody and comes out and scares her, she doesn't scream, she doesn't run, she throws hands. Okay? This is just her natural reaction. And so this has happened to multiple people. Um, Uh, When she was younger, she has two younger brothers and uh, she was sleeping in her room and one of her brother's friends comes in because he's staying the night and he's supposed to get a blanket out of my wife's room. And so he comes in and my wife's asleep and all of a sudden she wakes up and sees this shadowy figure and she just swings and punches him right in the face, okay? Um, This has happened multiple times for my wife. So fair warning, don't scare her. Don't stand behind because she'll just swing at you and then she'll apologize later. I've only punched somebody in the face one time, one time. It was my brother, okay? So I have a brother who's a year and a half older than me, and then we have stepbrothers and sisters on both sides of our family. And I was about eight years old. My brother was probably nine or ten. And at the time, for whatever reason, my brother really wanted to annoy me. And so, as you guys probably know, this type of thing happens if you have siblings, and uh, it was in the afternoon, and we're sitting there, and all of a sudden, my brother just comes up on my side, and he won't leave my side, and I said, what are you doing? What are you doing? Like, this is pretty juvenile for a 10-year-old. Like, and I even know it at the time, and I'm like, you need to stop. You need to stop. I'm serious, Josh. I'm serious, Josh. And it was annoying me so much, and I was kind of having a bad day, and he saw it, and so that just fueled the fire for him to do it more. So I physically remove myself. I remember going out into the front yard. I'm like, Josh, you need to leave me alone. Josh, you need to leave me alone. I go out the front door, and I'm in kind of our grass area. I said, Josh, this is the last time I'm warning you. Don't do this. Josh, this is the last time I'm warning you. Before he even got don't do this out of his mouth, I grabbed him, threw him down on the ground, pinned him, straddled him, and just popped him in the nose. Blood everywhere. He's crying. I'm crying. (laughs) Because I feel bad that I did it. And then we went in, the best part of the whole story is that we went in and told our parents what happened, and we both got punished. Because I should have gotten punished for what I did, but my brother got punished, and he kept saying, I already got punished. I got hit in the nose. I'm already, like, why am I getting punished as well? Have you ever been sideways with somebody, specifically in your family? Man, sometimes these intense rivalries with our brothers and sisters are are maybe, like, I've never punched anybody else in the face because I really haven't felt freedom to do that. But I'll do it to my brother. Right? And sometimes we get into these situations with our family that um, they almost become enemies all of a sudden. And we should be closer to them than anyone else. There's a civil, uh, sibling rivalry that is uh, pretty well known uh, about 100 years ago. There's these two brothers, Adolf and, uh, and Rudolph. Is his name Rudolph? That can't be right. <laughs> it is right. That's his name. Um, <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Uh, The Dassler brothers, this is in the 1920s in Germany, and they start a shoe company together as brothers, and it's growing pretty well, but it really takes off in 1936 because the Olympics were held in Berlin, and Jesse Owens for America won the gold medal, and he wore their shoes. So their business starts to explode. Well, about four years later, they start getting into some major conflict. We don't know all the reasons why, but they separate, and they go certain different ways, and they build factories of two different shoe manufactures right across the river from one another in the same city. And the older brother, he named his company Adidas. The younger brother named his company Puma. And so that's where we get. These are two brothers that should be together. They should be working together. But they had so many conflicts, so many problems, they split ways. And it was said even at that time, if somebody from Puma started dating somebody from Adidas and married them, they would be fired. And vice versa. Like, why do we do this with the closest people that we ought to have relationship with? This is where we're going to pick up our story in our series, We Want a King, because what happens is God's people, that should be a family under his reign, start fighting each other and doing crazy things to one another. I don't think that applies to us at all, right, in the church. That never happens to us. We don't fight each other within the body of Christ, right? Okay, so... Uh, And and really where we're going to go after the big idea, if you're writing this down this morning, because we're going to cover a lot of text this morning, is this. Instead of fighting our family over these three things, which we see in the text, over power, over pain, and over position, we ought to strive to live in harmony, which we're going to see in King David's behavior. We ought to strive to live in harmony with heartbreak, honesty, and humility. Which again, I think applies a ton to our current context when we talk about the body of Christ in the church, which is our family, if you're a follower of Jesus. So, a quick recap if you're joining us for the first time, uh, we've been walking through this series called We Want a King. Uh, We're 10 weeks in. We've got 11 weeks left, so we're halfway there. And and in this series, what we're specifically doing is we're we're looking at the, the first three kings of the nation of Israel, God's people. We're looking at a man named Saul, we're looking at a man named David, and a man named Solomon, and the rise and fall of their leadership. And so if you are new, um, you can grab one of these out at the connect desk. It just basically says the reading. And this is going to thing that's going to probably be most helpful for you to track through the series because we're taking big chunks, uh, chapters at a time. We're looking at five chapters this morning, which is normally not what we do. But because it's a narrative form, we're able to do it. So read along with us. And even if you read this week, you get into chapter two and like after the first five verses, you're like, what is I don't what, what am I reading? Like, if you read any of it, because we're introduced to new characters, new places, and it doesn't seem to make any sense to us. So my hope this morning is we kind of walk through this text together and understand that, again, we saw Saul, because God's people in 1 Samuel 8, which is where we started the series, are going, like, we're, we want a king. We want a king like the other nations. They're looking to their right and to their left, and they see kings rule in a certain way, and they're tired of trusting God by faith. They're tired of living by faith and say, we want a king like the other nations, and God says, don't do that. It's not going to go well for you. And they just totally ignore his warning. And they go, no, no, no. We want a king. And so God, in His grace, gives them Saul. And Saul, man, he's he looks like a king on the outside. He's tall. He's handsome. He's rich. But early on, we see cracks in his character, and we see that uh, really begin to unravel his leadership as he has some success because of God's spirit. But then. Because of his ego and his pride and his insecurity, he starts to disobey. And then when he gets called to the carpet in 1 Samuel 15 by the prophet Samuel, he, he not only doesn't say, well, yeah, I didn't disobey, but he kind of doubles down. Like, no, 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 I didn't do anything wrong. And his pride is part of the problem of his leadership. And because of that, his kingdom is stripped away, and it's given to this shepherd boy in the next chapter, in chapter 16, this young boy named David. David gets anointed as the next king, but he doesn't take power for a long time. And then we see this back and forth between David and Saul that we've been covering. And Saul, in his insecurity, is chasing and trying to kill David. And David, in his love for his enemy, is not taking out Saul, but he's saying, I'm going to put it in God's hands. So that's kind of where we left off. We're we're, we're kind of fast-forwarding through the end of 1 Samuel, picking up in 2 Samuel. What's happened at the end of 1 Samuel is Saul dies. The last chapter, chapter 31, what we see is that Saul and his son Jonathan, we've been covering Jonathan as well, they're in this battle against the Philistines. Philistines are against God's people, and they're fighting them, and they take a couple arrows, and Saul, in kind of his Saulnessness that we've seen, like he goes, okay, this I can't do it anymore, and he falls on his spear. He tries to kill himself, but he can't even do that well. Um, because we see in, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, this Amalekite comes by and Saul ca- calls out to him and says, Hey, I, I'm not going to live. Would you kill me? And this guy goes, Okay, I'll kill you. And he kills him, takes his crown, brings it back to David in 2 Samuel chapter 1. It's like, Look, I, I delivered your enemy, hoping to get some type of praise, hoping to get some type of like, recognition and position. And David doesn't react that way. He's heartbroken, not only because of Saul, but because of Jonathan. And that's kind of where we're going to be picking up in chapter 2 of 2 Samuel. And here's what I'm going to do. There's um, five slides because I'm going like, how do I do this well (laughs) in the midst of new characters? Again, if we were in a conversation and I started saying um, Peoria and Glendale and just like Ryan did and Avondale, we would all kind of go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know where that is or I know those people. But because this is Old Testament narrative that the original readers would understand, we get lost in the names real quick. Okay? So I'm going to put up a map with a slide. You can go and throw that up. So uh, we see that, uh, again, Saul is the king of Israel at the time, and his son Jonathan is next in line. But it's clear Jonathan doesn't want the throne because he knows David's been anointed as the next king. So these two dudes get killed at the end of 1 Samuel, okay? Now, if ish i ish, bethesh, ish bethesh. been practicing all week, ish bethesh. that's his son, that's his third son, Saul's third son. He wasn't at the battle, he's alive. Okay, Abner is the cousin of Saul. He's also the general. So that's Team Saul up on the top. On the bottom is Team David. Okay, and so you see the map there. The color's kind of hard to distinguish, but down in Judah, the bottom half of Israel, uh, they're about David. So Judah in the text in, in 2 Samuel 2 goes, David, we think you're the guy. We want to anoint you as the next king. And so he goes, yep, and then he starts having conversations even with uh, another part of that area, Jabesh Gilead who, again, was team Saul, but David goes, actually, this is what's going to be helpful. And so they kind of come on his side. Now, Joab is uh, David's general, and then his brother, he's got three brothers in the text. Really, Ashel is the one that we're going to pay attention to, okay? So these are the characters of what's going to be happening in the next several chapters as we move along the text. And what I want to do is I want to explain the story, and then we'll kind of go back in, and we'll sit in sections of chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. We're not really going to touch much of chapter 1 or chapter 5 where David's kingdom is established and everybody gets on board and their team David, okay? So here's what happens. Um, when Saul and Jonathan die, it's not assumed that David is going to be the next king, which we go, what? Like, we've been reading along. We know that uh, God has anointed David through his prophet going, well, clearly he's the next guy, and he's been pretty spotless in his interactions with people, He's going to start to have cracks coming in when he gets some power. We'll see that in the next com- coming weeks, and he makes bad decisions like a lot of us do. However, at this time, um, it's not clear because Abner is going, well, dude, the next king's going to be Ishlebeth. Ish- like, he's the next in line. It's not David, it's this guy. This is how it works. And so, what happens is there's these two kingdoms that starts to divide. You got, again, Team David and king, uh, Team Saul, or Team Ishlebeth, okay? So that's what begins to happen in chapter two. Let me walk you through what happens in the next three chapters. In the midst of that, this conflict arises. We read out of uh, chapter two that they go to these pools and they gear up against each other and they fight each other because you have Abner who's the general and you have Joab who's the general. And they say, let's have these guys fight. All of a sudden they start stabbing each other and falling out and all this stuff. And David's guys start winning. So Abner takes his guys and they're like, we're out of here. And they leave. As they're leaving, um, uh, a shell who's Job's brother is going after abner the text says he's light of foot he's chasing after him just like my brother was annoying me he's coming after him and uh, at one point abner goes are you are you a shell and he goes yes he goes i don't want to fight you because if i fight you and i kill you i'm gonna have to answer to your brother and i don't want to do that a shell just ignores him and keeps chasing after him so at one point Uh, joab can't do anything else he turns around and the text says he takes the butt of his spear so he's not trying to kill him because he could take the tip of his spear he flips it around and he shoves it at uh, a shell i think just to kind of maybe knock the wind out of him get some distance from them but it kills him so now uh, joab and his other brother they're really chasing abner because they're like you just killed our brother we're coming after you even harder Abner's men take the high ground. He has this whole speech at the end of chapter 2 where he says, we need to stop this fighting. This is not going to go well for us. We're supposed to be uh, one nation. And even in chapter uh, 2, verse 26, he says this. He says, then Abner called to Joab, shall the sword devour us forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? So Abner's going, let's stop doing this. They part ways. That's the end of chapter two. The beginning of chapter three, it says that David is building his family. He's having kids, he has wives, all types of things are happening. Then what happens is Ishabeth comes to Abner as general and goes, Dude, I know what you did last summer. Like you hooked up, you hooked up with the concubine, my my dad's concubine. And Abner goes off. He doesn't, so we don't know if he actually did it or not. The text doesn't tell us, but he has this pretty defensive response. He goes like, I didn't do this. How dare you accuse me of this? And because of that, uh, he turns and goes, actually, I'm done with you. I'm going to switch my loyalty and alliance to David, right? This is like a whole gangster movie reality show happening in the text. Or I was telling one of my friends about this. and He's like, dude, this is just like Game of Thrones, It's like, oh, I don't know. I don't watch Game of Thrones. I don't advise you to watch it either. But anyway, so all this is happening. And so what happens is uh, Abner goes, okay, I am going to switch sides. And so you can see he switches sides to the side of David. He goes to David. He goes, dude, I'm done with this other guy. You're going to be the king. I can unite this thing together. So they have a meal, and it's like, this is awesome. Let's do it. As he leaves, as Abner leaves, Joab shows up. And Joab's like, dude, was Abner just here? And David's like, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna. He goes, no, 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 he's trying to sneak on us. Like, what is this about? And David's like, I don't think he is. I think this is a good thing. He leaves, Joab calls Abner back and David doesn't know about it. So Abner comes back to the camp thinking like this is friendly and Joab like meets him in the streets in the alley and like stabs him and kills him because he killed his brother. He's got pain, he's got revenge. He's like, this is not right. He kills him. David's like, this is not good. This is not helpful. He's heartbroken over these types of things. That's the end of chapter 3. Chapter 4 starts where these siblings that are part of the house of oh, uh, David are going like, okay, we see the, the, the power shifting towards David, and so we want to get on that side. And so they sneak in at one point uh, when uh, Ishabeth is taking a nap, and they kill him. They murder him. Then they cut off his head. They bring his head back to David. I told you, it's like Game of Thrones stuff. They bring, his, they bring his head back to David, and they're like, look, your enemy. We got your enemy, hoping that David would go, yeah, you guys are awesome. And David's like, what have you done? This is not okay. And he basically sends them off to be executed, these two brothers. Chapter 5 starts, and because of all that, David's reaction, um, his whole line is beginning to be established, that he is going to be the king over Judah and Israel completely. That's where the text goes. So let's rewind and go like, okay, why is there this internal fighting? Where is it coming from, and how does it relate to us today? Three ways that we see this show up. Um, The first is power. The first is power. There's internal uh, family fighting because, again, there's power that can be grabbed the, the, king, the kingdom is not yet decided yet. And so Saul's team is like, no, we want to have the power. David's team is like, no, we want to have the power. And again, we see it in the text. If you have a Bible, look down at 2 Samuel chapter 2, starting at verse 12. Let's read it again. It says, Abner, the son of Ner, and the sons of Ishabeth, son of Saul, went out from Manahem to Gibeon, and Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out to meet them at the pool of Gibeon and they sat down one on one side of the pool and one on the other side of the pool so there's both these camps on both sides of the pool and Abner said to Joab these two generals are talking to one another let the young men arise and compete before us and man it gets it gets way out of hand really quick and Job said let let them arise verse 15 then they arose and they passed over by number 12 from Benjamin of Ishabeth son of Saul and 12 of the servants of David and each caught his opponent by the head and thrust the sword into his opponent's side, and they fell down together. Therefore, the place was called Helkat Hazahim, which literally means the field of the hostilities. That's what that word means in the original language, uh, which is at Gibeon, verse 17. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So what does it have to do with power, right? They're both trying to control power, And again, in the context of what we're talking about, if you've made a decision for Jesus, if you follow him, you've bent your knee to him, and you're saying, I am a Christian, you've been adopted into the family of God called the church, you now have a new family. And what happens in this story is that these men get caught grabbing each other and stabbing each other in the side, and they both fall down. And don't we do that in the body of Christ all the time? We don't stab each other with daggers or swords, but we get on social media and we've got this camp that wants to hold this power and this position and this idea and then they're shooting arrows at this camp over here and they're both Christian. They both follow Jesus. But what happens is we get into these spaces where we're not face to face and we start typing with our thumbs or we type on our keyboards, and we're shooting daggers at one another saying horrible things about one another. Because, man, we don't want to lose this power over this issue that seems so important at the time. I don't know if you've seen that. Maybe it's just me. But it seems like this happens all the time. I had a guy that discipled me when I was in college, and it was in the context of a sports ministry. And I remember we were sitting down, meeting one time, and we were watching basketball practice. And at one point during the basketball practice, he pointed out one of the guys on the team who was a Christian, but really had different doctrinal views than him. And at one point, as we're talking, and he's pointing at this guy, he goes, Dude, this guy, like, I can't, like, can you believe he said this or he said that? And then I was like, Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. And then, like, 10 seconds later, he goes, That was totally wrong. Like, there's no way I should have said that. This guy's my brother in Christ. Like, I shouldn't be saying that about him. That's not fair to him. He's not here to defend himself. That's not fair anyway. Like, what, why am I doing that? I'm, I'm really sorry I said that, man. And that really stuck with me. This idea that we can have different opinions on theological issues, but if we're all under the blood of Christ, we need to love each other. And we just don't seem to be doing that that often. Because we're trying to hold power or we're worried about our power getting eroded in these certain spaces and kind of these cul-de-sacs of our own views in social media. We're after power. The second thing we see in our story in this internal uh, family of fighting is not only power, but we don't know what to do with our pain. All right, we see this in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. It says, when Joab came out of David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, And they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah, But David did not know about it. But when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Eshiel, his brother. Joab doesn't know what to do with his pain. The only thing he thinks is accurate is to get revenge on this guy. And so he plays that out. He does that to Abner, his brother. Not a physical brother, but a brother under uh, the scope of God's people. What do you do when you've been hurt? Specifically hurt from somebody that's a Christian, <laughs> that you've had conversations with, and they say something about you or they do something to you that's massively hurtful. What do you do with that pain? You know, our, our family situation um, my, my wife's family, we're kind of all huddled in this cul de sac. Um, my wife's uh, f- parents live behind us. Our, 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 uh, the corners of our fences touch, and there's a gate that you can go back and forth. And then uh, she has two younger brothers. The middle brother lives right next to us, and then the younger brother lives next to him. And so it's the birth order, right? It's a good thing. People always go, Is that a good thing? It's, it's a good thing. We love it, we love our family. Um, And the two brothers have uh, uh, three girls in between the two houses. They've got a six-year-old daughter, a four-year-old daughter, and a two-year-old daughter. Uh, So my wife, being the greatest auntie ever, like, has toys. Our kids are all grown up. We don't use little toys, but she goes to the dollar store, and she fills up this basket with toys. And they're all types of toys for her little nieces to play with when they come in as a a form of hospitality. So we have these, you know, little figurines that they play with. We've got coloring books. We've got this little xylophone that they can hit that that makes music and stuff like that. And so they love it. But these are all, like, dollar store toys. So they break all the time when they get played with. And so we have the option, like to just go. Well, they're kind of broken, but just leave them in there. That's fine. We'll just leave. Or we could just ignore it and be like, ah, it's not that big a bad deal. Or we can dispose of them properly and then put new toys in the basket. Do you know how to dispose of your pain properly? When you get hurt by somebody, what do you do with it? Do you ignore it? Do you kind of sweep it under the rug and pretend like it doesn't really happen? It's not that big a deal. Or do you do what Joab does? Do you try and get revenge on that person by saying something snarky back or doing something or saying about them to somebody else because you're hurt? Men and women, we have to figure out what to do with our pain. We live in a broken world. We're going to say things and we're going to do things to each other, sometimes on purpose, sometimes by accident. But we have to understand how to metabolize the pain that we feel from people in our community and specifically in our Christian family. What are you doing with that pain? This is some of the problem that happens in this internal family fighting. We'll talk about on the back end what is a healthy way to dispose of our pain that we have from our brothers and sisters. So there's power, there's pain, and this kind of idea of getting back or getting even. And then the third thing we see in the text is this position and this internal family fighting. Verse 5 of 2 Samuel chapter 4, this story of these brothers, again, that go after uh, Ish-bosheth. Let's, let's pick it up in verse 6. He's, Ish-bosheth is, is sleeping. He's at noonday rest. In verse 6, it says, They came into the midst of the house, as to get wheat, so they're kind of being sneaky, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechabab and Benaniah, his brother, escaped. These are the two brothers that do this. Verse 7. When they came into the house, he lay on his bed, is lay on his bed, and in his bedroom, and they struck him and they put him to death, and they behead him. They took his head and they went to the way of Arabah all night. And they brought the head of Ishabath to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, here's the head of Ithzabesh, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day on Saul and his offspring. So here's what's happening. Again, these guys are team Saul, team Ithzabeth, but they see the, the, the tide changing. They see the power shifting. Oh, Abner went over there like, David's probably going to win this battle. And so they sneak in and they go, okay, we're going to be team David. And they kill Ishlabeth while he's sleeping. They bring his head to David, and they're going like, okay, this is going to give us some position. This is going to give us some power because of what we did. David's going to be happy with this. David's not happy with it. We're going to find that out in a minute. But, man, we do this all the time. We see positions of power shifting. We can kind of go like, oh, I want to be on this side. I want to be with the power, and so what that looks like a lot of the times is in, again, our words, our gossip. We can do this, and I've seen this tons in the church. My wife and I have been in parachurch ministry for 15 years, now in church ministry full-time for five years, and I can't believe how many times this phrase has come out of my mouth in the last five years. Is that really a thing? Like, like we're arguing about that? Like, there's people that don't know Jesus, and we're, we're going to argue about this this is crazy to me. And I see it all the time as people start to see the change in position of power, and they start trying to huddle up to, to me or other people that might have position, and they go, hey, did you know what happened over here? Oh, you should really know this. And it feels like they're doing it to get some type of position from me or position from other elders or position from other leaders, and they're gossiping and they're saying things that they wouldn't say in front of the other person. They're doing harmful things to the other person so that they can get some type of position. And it's terrible to do. And when that happens, I usually just stop them. I say, have you talked to the person about this? Like, I really, I, I appreciate you want to share this with me, but I really feel like you need to talk to that person directly. And sometimes they have, and sometimes they haven't, but I'm always going, like, why, why are you sharing this with me? Like, what, what's behind your motives? And again, this Internal family fighting happens all the time in the context of power and pain and position. And again, we're going to fight with one another. We are. This is part of the family of Christ. This is going to happen. You can have different positions, but let's look at what David does in the context of somebody that is trying to lead well and not grab onto power and not uh, revenge by pain and not through position. Because what David does when he sees and experiences this internal fighting in God's people he has these three things that he reacts to. He has heartbreak, he has honesty, and he has humility. This should really be the posture of us as we move forward in fighting with one another. How do we see this play out? Heartbreak. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, it gets news back to David that Saul and Jonathan are dead. This is David's reaction. It says, he took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening and for Saul and for Jonathan and his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. We also see this true when Abner dies. Second uh, Samuel, uh, in verse 31, it says, And David said to Joab and to all the other people who were before him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. King David followed the beer, which is like the coffin. He's walking along in the funeral procession because he's heartbroken. When we hear things about our brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe it's local, maybe it's national, is your posture to be sad? Some things happen in the church, in a church in Texas, even in this last week. And is your posture to go, I am heartbroken that this happened to the body of Christ, When I scroll through my YouTube feed, everybody goes, well, let me tell you what I think about what happened, and let me tell you what I think about what happened. Then they're giving commentary on what's happened, and they're not even associated with the people. Could we stop doing that? Could we have a heart of brokenness to go, man, this is so sad. I don't want to see the bride of Christ doing this. Can we have a posture of going, man, this really makes me sad. This really makes me sad. Not only do we see heartbreak, but we see honesty from David. He doesn't just become sad and leave it there and just become sad. He has honest conversations with what needs to happen to some of these people and even the consequences of some of their decisions. We see this in what he does to the brothers who kill Ishlabeth in 2 Samuel chapter 4. Starting in verse 8, they brought the head of Ishlabeth to David at Hebron, and he said to the king, Here's the head of Ishlebeth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought you life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and his offspring. Verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Benaiah, his brother, and the sons of Ribian and Berotite. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, this is David talking back to them, the one who told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news. I seized him and killed him at Ziglag which was the reward I gave him for the news? How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, in his bed, shall I now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from all the earth? So not only is King David heartbroken, but he's honest with what needs to happen. He's saying, this isn't okay to continue. We need to have consequences in love from what you have done. This happens all the time and it needs to happen in the context of the church. It's not just okay to be heartbroken and sad all the time. You need to move forward in honest conversations and say, maybe you need to take some time off, or maybe we need to have a reconciling conversation between you and this other person because we need to be honest in the midst of our internal fighting, which often is hard. The last thing we see David respond to, he responds to heartbreak and honesty, and the last one is humility. Humility. In Abner's funeral, we see this in... 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 32, after Abner dies, says they bury Abner at Hebron. And the king filled up his voice and wept the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. For a king to weep, for a king to show this type of emotion in this context would be undignified. It wouldn't make much sense. And we see how Saul is kind of proud and he doesn't kind of show these emotions. But David in his humility is just honest and raw. And he's humble to weep. And we continue to see that as Saul goes away in the context of our series and David starts to rise. The difference between David and Saul is led to their heart posture of humility versus pride. Saul is proudful and it leads to his demise. David is humble. Even when he does something sinful and he gets confronted on it, he has humility. He's broken. He weeps before the Lord. Saul doesn't do that. He does the opposite. he Justifies himself. How much more do we need to have a posture of humility if we get into this internal fighting, whether it's here at this local context, whether it's nationally with the the whole church, the body of Christ? Can we have a posture of humility to go, man, I don't know what's going on. I don't know all the answers, and it makes me sad, and we need to have honest conversations about it. This is what God is calling us to in the midst of our fighting, which we will fight all the time. Are we going to jump quickly to power and pain and position, or are we going to have a heart posture of being broken, of being heartbroken, of knowing what it means to have honest conversations, loving honest conversations, and to have that in a posture of humility? I just want to challenge you as you live your life and whether you're on social media, other outlets that you see, like let that be your first flinch. And ask God to change your heart instead of being judgmental and kind of prideful and poking at certain things as we fight with one another. Instead, have a posture of humility. Because what David really does, in, in most of the text leading up to this, is he shows us what Jesus is going to look like when he comes as the true king. Because when you think of what Jesus has done, he is the king that's heartbroken over his people. Right? You remember that he, he rolls up and he sees Israel and he weeps before because he says they're like sheep without a shepherd and he's heartbroken at this internal fighting between God's people. Jesus is heartbroken. Jesus is the king that embodies honesty as he confronts pride and self-righteousness of those fighting for that power and pain and position, mostly in the religious leaders. Jesus has honest, loving conversations with them. Not only is he heartbroken, not only does he embody honesty, but Jesus is the king that models humility. Right, we see it in Philippians chapter 2 that tells us that Jesus didn't grasp for power, but what did he do? He empties himself, taking on the form of a servant, even towards death. And if we have any shot at not grabbing for power, not trying to alleviate our pain through revenge, not trying to move and position ourselves next to the people that have power. If we have any shot of being humble, any shot of being honest, any shot of being heartbroken, it's because we follow King Jesus. And he can change us because he's freed us. If you've made the decision to trust Jesus with your life and you've exchanged your life for his, do you know what? You don't have to fight for a position because your position is in Christ. He is your defender like we sang about. You don't have to fight for position. You don't have to fight for power because you have power in the Holy Spirit that lives in you. And you don't have to fight for revenge for your pain. You can bring your pain to the cross because Jesus took it there. It's a different way to live. We're freed up to live that way. But often we forget those truths and the implications of the gospel. May this story remind us of our posture in the midst of our fighting. Let's be people of kindness, of humility, of honesty, and of being heartbroken when we see fighting within the church. Let's pray. Father, we need your help, and we really need your help. God, as we hurt one another, we need forgiveness. We need honesty to apologize to one another. God, we need your help to not be prideful and try and get revenge when our pain and our hurt. And God, we need your help to not move to position, but to know our position is in you. Would you help us this morning with that? God, we ask that you would do it. We pray in your name. Amen.